I had to go through some hardship to get to the blessing of receiving the Messiah. Uh, earlier this week, thanks so much. Wasn't that tree beautiful, by the way? And just this, and then and the lobby and all that. Thank you guys so much for helping out. We had pizza and hot chocolate. That was a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, I don't know about you, like where you are, like, you know, we often think of the Devil's Playground as like Las Vegas or some other places or whatnot. The Devil's Playground is actually glitter because it is everywhere and it covers everything. And like every day this week, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have glitter on my face and I have glitter on my clothes and it shouldn't be there. But there you go. But we're so glad that you guys did that. Also, just as a reminder, if you saw the tree as you came in this morning, you see gift cards on that tree. It's a couple opportunities to, to bless foster children in the system with a $10 gift card to your favorite fast food restaurant or Starbucks or wherever you want to do. Uh, if you want to bring those in the next week and leave those on the tree, you can do that. Also, our homeless ministry, which is something that Arlington Police Department has asked us to do, um, they've asked for $5 gift cards to either 7-Eleven or QT. It's uh, something easy for homeless to use here in Arlington. In addition to that, if you want to do something besides gift cards, because I know you're like, I don't want to give a gift card. I want to give something a little more personal. They're asking for new beanies, new gloves, and new jackets. And so if you want to provide a jacket, we'll take that. We're going to deliver those on the 18th um, to, with Arlington PD. If you want to leave a little note in that and just say, hey, here's my prayer blessing for you, I think that's a nice little touch to do that. So if you feel led, by all means, we have opportunities to love on those that are around us. Advent means the anticipating the arrival of something. That's what Advent season is. And so that's why we have named the series Anticipating Advent. And obviously, as we've said, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. And arrivals are important, right? Whether you're on a plane getting to where you need to go or who drove 4,000 hours to get to Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago, right? Arrivals are important because they signify change, don't they? Right? Don't they signify change? You leave one place for another, one season ends and another one begins. One set of circumstances leaves you and you counter another another set of circumstances. Sorry, this thing has been breaking all day. It's going to fall off in a minute. I'm going to go ahead and say that, but whatever. Um, But again, Advent is the celebration of Jesus showing up. And it got me to think, and what are some other ways that God shows up besides what we're celebrating for the next few weeks? And here's a couple. He could show up in several ways, can't he? Doesn't he show up in several ways? Like he could show up miraculously, like that thing that needs to happen and you're not convinced it's going to happen and then it just happens right at the perfect moment. That's one. He shows up through answered prayer. He shows up by moving you through the plan of your life. He shows up through worship. He shows up through a friend or just a, 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 a meeting a stranger at the right moment. God shows up in all kinds of ways. And Jesus' coming at the birth of a baby is the way, as we've already alluded to, as Dave alluded to this morning. But just a couple of truths this morning. Truth number one, at any time, no matter the circumstances, at any time, no matter the circumstances, God can and often does, doesn't he, show up in unexpected ways. Because that's what Jesus coming as a baby is. It was so unexpected. There was no narrative for it for God's people. And God showed up in a miraculous way. 
Because it's true, isn't it? God does, doesn't God show up often differently in how we think he should or when, right? We've talked about that in recent weeks. Like, God, I have this timeline, and if you could just fit into my timeline, that would be really awesome for me, right? I need you to do this. That would be really great. Or if you could just do this specifically, like if you could do it this way as opposed to not that way, that'd be really good too. And yet God just says, hey, I love you anyway, and I'm going to do it the way that I think is best for you. And it's, sometimes it's hard for us to figure that out, isn't it? But that doesn't make him any less God. Because what I love is that God doesn't conform to what we think we need. He actually conforms us to what we need to be. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the kingdom? God loves us so much that he conforms us to what we need to be, not what we think we should get. And so that's the intro for the this, this sermon this morning. The pathway for the series is this. Week one is taking a deeper look at what Israel had to get through before Jesus' arrival. We'll do that in just a minute. Week two is how to wait well for God to show up. Because I don't know about you, I don't wait very well, right? It doesn't matter if I'm going to the airport or not. Like if I get there early, if I get there right before the gates, you know, before I, they close the door, like I don't wait well. And I don't know about you, I think that's something that we need to learn more about. What does it look like for us to wait well? Week three is can we accept how God shows up when different than our expectations? Man, that's a good one, right? Circle that one. That's going to be great. And then week four, and I love week four because it'll be, because Sunday falls on Christmas Eve, which is really fun. So we'll have 10 a.m. Christmas Eve service like we normally do on a Sunday morning. And then we'll have a four o'clock Christmas Eve service that evening with candles and do all the thing. We, we moved it so that you have room to participate at four and still make your family events that night. But week four is, will you worship? Because when he doesn't show up in the right way, I have a choice to make, don't I? Do I trust him or not? And will I worship him or not? Because he's up to something that's a little bit different than what I think. So is that clear? Sorry, does, that, does that make sense? Week one, week two, week three, week four. And so this morning, I'm going to show somehow how to condense the Old Testament into about 30 minutes, which is going to be really hard. So we'll get out in about three hours. Does that sound good? Right? If you throw glitter at me, I will be really upset. Do not do that. It's the devil's playground. And it's not Las Vegas. It is glitter. All right. So, condensing the Old Testament in the 30 minutes. Three pictures. Picture number one, crossing the Jordan with spies. All right, that's picture number one. Turn your Bibles to Numbers. Yes, we're in Numbers. Not exactly the Advent passage, but yet here we are, and you're stuck with me for the next 20 minutes or so, starting in verse 17. Follow along, please. You find it. There it is. And so, up until this point, Israelites have left Egypt. They've made their way through the wilderness. They're now at the River Jordan. They're looking at the promised land. You get the picture, right? Starting in verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev. And I'm going to butcher these names, but that's okay too, because Jesus loves me. Go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. And whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds. So we see in that verse, like, just, hey, we just need you to look, right? Is it good or bad? Are they strong or weak? Is there a bunch of people or not? Are they cities or camps because they're different? And then you see this in verse 20. 
And whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land now that the time of the season was of the first ripe grapes, right? Verse 21, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lebo Hamath, and then they went into Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shashai, Talmai, the descendants of Anak were there. That's the people that were already there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and in verse 23, they came to the valley of Eshol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between them and also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel had cut down from there. Now we get to the good part, okay? This is going to be helpful. And at the end of the 40 days, so they were there for 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And in verse 26, it says, they came to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness at Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land it's sitting on the pole, right? And in verse 27, they told him, when we came to the land, the people who dwell in the land are strong, excuse me, sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, because there's always the punch, is it there? Is it there always the counterpunch? It's what you think's going to be really good. And then you just, usually the other shoe drops. That's usually my experience and how I live my life and make my way through the world. There's good things and bad things. However, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites. And the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. All right, we'll circle back to there in just a second. And then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought the people to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we had gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Doesn't sound like the promised land to me at all. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And they, there we saw Nephilim, the son of Anak. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. So, you may be familiar with that passage, right? So, they get to the edge of the Jordan. They go for 40 days to check it out. And it's all the worst possibilities of what they're looking for. Besides that it is filled with milk and honey. Everything else is going to be hard, harder, and almost near impossible. And so I just want to paint this picture to you this morning, because remember, God uses this situation to set his people up to want the Messiah, right? You ever wonder why hard things happen? It's so that we would long for something other than what's happening. And I just want you to imagine leaving a home, because they left a home that they didn't want in Egypt, right? To a home that they wanted but couldn't have. See that? You see that they left a home in Egypt that they didn't want to a home in Canaan that they couldn't have. And it got me to think it's kind of like when I first when I bought my first car. I went to the lot to get so like I'm a nineties kid and in the mid nineties, like Mustangs were pretty cool, right? And so there was a Mustang that was for sale and we went to go buy that Mustang, me and my grandmother. God bless her soul. And when we got there, the Mustang was gone, and in its place, which was my first car, which I'm ashamed to admit, was an Escort LX. 
a four-door at that. So, like, I went going, right? There you go. Right? There you go. There's a car guy in the back, right? I went going expecting a two-door coupe that had Mustang in it, and I walked away with a four-door that had Escort in it, right? There's the thing. You don't always get what you want. I think I heard that somewhere, right? If you start singing it, that's going to be really awkward. So, they're leaving a home that they don't want to take possession of a home they can't have. And so what we know in the moment is the Israelites are afraid to cross over and take the land. And we often think that that's their first mistake, but it's not. Them afraid of going forward is actually the second mistake. Their first mistake is in verse 30. Let me read it again real quick because we might have missed it. After they give the report, but Caleb quieted the people, right? Before Moses said, let us go up once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it. Look, Caleb saw all the report. He's like, no, I'm good. Strong people, got it. Milk and honey, that's great. Grasshoppers, no problem. Fortifications, not camps, we're good. All these people, we're fine. We can take it. And that's their first mistake, that they could handle the situation, whatever it was, whatever the report, in their own power and strength. Because Caleb didn't say they could do it with God. They said that we could overcome it ourselves. Which brings us to truth number two. Truth number two. When going through trials and tribulations, God wants us to depend on Him and His resources. You see that, right? He doesn't want us to say we've got it in our own strength and power. He wants us to say, no, actually, God, I could do it with you if you're with me and if I'm doing it according to your purpose and plan. But the Israelites in the story here in in Numbers was like, no, we got it. We're good. And so I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I become stressed because of circumstances, my natural default is to actually depend on my own strength and power. Now, is that sinful? Actually, it's not, because it's okay to depend on and to use what God has given me. But when I use God's gifts and skills that he's given me and exclude him in that process, that's where it becomes problematic. And usually when we're pressed and stressed and upset, whatever, you know, or to say it this way, whenever you get squeezed by life, whatever's inside comes out first, doesn't it? And that's what you see here in the story in Numbers. Cutting God out always has consequences because God's people did not look at what they could accomplish with God, but just through themselves. Now let me skip down to chapter 14, starting in verse 13, and we'll see... What happens next? But Moses said, so they've been arguing. The people rebel, and they're like, we're not going. And then Moses, being the good person that he is, intercedes for God's people on behalf before God. And, but Moses said to the Lord, in verse 13, then the Egyptians will hear. If we don't, come, if we don't go, they're going to hear, right? For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, right, because if they're not going to make it, they can't go, they're too weak and too can't handle taking possession of the land, then the nations whom you have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give them. Isn't that interesting? Man, talk about praying a prayer to activate God 
And he has killed them in this wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Because whenever we act without God, that is iniquity and transgression, isn't it? Because we're not made to work without God. We're made to work with God, right? We're not made. I know, like I do my best to live my life that way, but we're actually not made to work without God. We're made to work with him. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of his people according to the greatness your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people. So the people are on the precipice. Moses is making the argument. He's like, no, God, if you'll forgive us, we can move on. And God forgives them, but not in the way that they think. And here it is in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned you according to your word. All right, Moses, I've heard you. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet you have put me to the test, these ten times. This is not the first time. It's the tenth time that we didn't talk about this morning. And not obey my voice shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he is a different spirit and has followed me, truly I will bring into the land in which he went. His descendants shall possess. Blah, 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 blah. And so I just want you to hear, right? There are consequences when we cut God out of our life. And so God put this situation before his people, not so that he could give them consequences, but so that he could cause them to depend more on him. Right? Last week we talked about in John's gospel in, in chapter 1 where it said he was, Jesus is the great light and yet his people did not receive him. We wonder where that started. Well, actually it starts right here in the wilderness. But there is hope in this story because of what? If God is using this to get his people ready to receive a Messiah, here's the hope for them in the story. A baby is coming. Think about that. It's not about possessing the land. It's about depending on God. It's about a relationship with God. And God is going to send a baby to to fix this issue. Amen? All right, that's picture number one. Are we following? We good? Okay, baby number two, or baby number two. That'd be weird. Story number two. Man, I'm trying to make a joke here, but it's not working. All right, anyway. Story number two. Of all the stories that I could have chosen, I chose some good ones. And it's just all, because I don't know about you, but like I go through seasons where I'm like, I don't think I'm doing anything right, and I feel like everything is messed up. You ever feel that way? And it's real easy in Christmas season to feel that way a lot. So I chose the worst of the worst because I think in the darkest of moments, God's light and patience and peace and grace shine the brightest. Babylonian exile. So fast forward a couple hundred years, more than that actually, Israel has taken the land. The kingdom has now divided itself. They were unified. Now there's two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the Babylonians are going to conquer because, again, Israel has turned away from their relationship with God. And so we pick up a prophet named Jeremiah in verse 20. Oh, that's not it. That's Hebrews. Starting in chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And if you know, Jeremiah had a really, really, really hard life as the mouthpiece for God. 
And now Pashur, the peace, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. And what he's prophesying is this, guys, if you don't stop, if you don't turn away, if you don't turn back to God, if you don't tear down the altars you've built to other gods, bad things are going to happen. And then here's the prognosis in verse 2. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. So Pashur, by the way, is like a second or third in command of the temple. He's not the chief priest, but he's high up. And the next day when Pashur, so he had the power to do this to Jeremiah, released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. Whenever God like says, hey, your name's not your name anymore, it's this, I would be really like, you should probably listen to what God says next. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. This is speaking in Pashur. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on, and I will give all of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive, the Babylon. He shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, or moreover I will give you all the wealth, give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, all the treasures, all the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemy, specifically the king of Babylon, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, and you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. And so what Jeremiah is saying, because you've led the entire nation astray, to worship other gods, you're going to lose everything. Isn't it interesting? They didn't have anything when they left Egypt. Then they went through the wilderness and they had everything in front of them as far as the promised land. God brings them through and they take it. And then what happens? Because they turn away, they lose everything again. And as I said, it's never a good sign when the Lord says, your name is no longer your name. But thank goodness, let me just say that. I don't know if you ever feel that way, like, I've just struggled so much. I don't know how much God loves me. God loves you so much that he sent his son in the form of a baby to die for you and for me. That's the truth. If you wonder where you sit with God, he sent your, his son to take your place. Thank goodness. Praise be to God. And while God knows that we could become distracted with all the things because there was lots of distractions in Jerusalem at the time, no, not only does God want us to depend on him and his resources, as we said a second ago, here's truth number three, because it's about the heart. We should focus our worship on God and him alone, because that's the issue, right? And if you start to connect the dots, I don't know if we could take that land, God, because those people are bigger than we, and they're stronger than we are, and look at little old me, that's a heart issue, Right? And when I start to think about other things that I could put my time and energy into, because it's a little hard to be, it's really easy to be distracted at Christmas and miss the reason for the season, if I could say that cliche statement. But that's about the heart, too. We should focus our worship on God and Him alone. And Advent is the season to focus our worship on God. Advent is the season to focus our worship on God. Matter of fact, it's His rescue plan. That the Messiah is coming instead of all the Christmas hoopla, which is where we spend most of our time, right? Because let's be honest. Can I be honest for a second? Do you know what I did on Thanksgiving after we ate the meal? I checked the pre-Black Friday sales, didn't I? Because they're there. Have you noticed that? It doesn't start on Black Friday. Black Friday doesn't start on Black Friday anymore. It starts on Thanksgiving. 
Because you get all the emails in the morning, you're like, well, I'll save those for later because I feel like I should spend time with my family, right? It's so easy to be distracted, isn't it? But Advent offers us the opportunity, just like communion offers us the opportunity, to reframe and refocus our gaze on Jesus. On Jesus. And just like the 40 years in the desert where the people who were disobedient to God back in the River Jordan story, God hands his people over because they were worshiping other things for him. I want to read you Psalm 137. It's not going to be on the board. This was in my reading this morning, and I love it when God just kind of works these things. And Don't you love it when God works these things into your life unexpectedly? This was legit, Psalm 137. How shall we sing the Lord's song is what it says. And in verse 1 it says, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down, and wept when we remembered Zion. That's the kingdom. They remembered. But they're not singing a song to the Lord in Jerusalem and in Zion. They're, rem- they're singing it somewhere else in Babylon. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required us of songs and our tormentors of mirth, saying, sing us a song of Zion. Can you imagine, right? Like just that statement alone. Like, hey, you had it really good back in the day. So why don't you sing us a song about that? Like who wants to sing a song about that, right? How shall we then sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Jerusalem is their highest joy because that's where the temple of God is. You see that, right? It's not about Jerusalem. It's not about the destination. It's about Walking with a God through all of of eternity. That's what it is. But guess what? A baby is coming, isn't it? That's number two. Last one. Almost done. Number three. Living under Persian rule. This is Nehemiah. If you're familiar with Nehemiah, here's what's awesome about this. The Israelites were rescued from Babylon and from the Babylonian exile but because the country of Persia, the nation of Persia, conquered Babylon and then allowed some of the Jews to go back, right? And that's how we get to know Nehemiah. We pick up Nehemiah's story in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halakiah, or Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. By the way, if you know when that is, let me know. In the 20th year, and I was in Susa, the capital, that's of Persia, but and I, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews, right? Because remember, the promised land contained Jerusalem, and that's where they were headed. And the Jews had escaped and survived the exile. And concerning Jerusalem, they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, notice his heart posture. He's in a foreign land, serving a foreign king, hearing about how desolate his city is, and notice his heart posture. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive to 
those uh, to and eyes open to the hear the prayer of your servant. And now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which, he, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember where this started? Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return me, Lord, if you return me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have, that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people in whom you have, what? Redeemed. Isn't that beautiful? By your great power and your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And I grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then Nehemiah identifies his position. I was a cup bearer to the king. Literally, his job was to drink the poison in the cup to make sure the cup was not poisoned before the king took a sip. And yet he prays a prayer. Lord, if you're great and awesome and powerful, and if you'll hear my prayer, will you send us back? Because he is grieved at the state of Jerusalem. And we know what that feels like, right? Don't we grieve the state of things? It could be family stuff. It could be friend stuff. It could be work stuff. It could be nation stuff. There's a lot to grieve in this world. But in the case of Jerusalem, way back to Jeremiah, right? If we're being honest, the decay that Nehemiah hears about Jerusalem started long before the walls were ever torn down. Isn't that right? Jesus, or Jerusalem was intact physically, but the spiritual ruin and decay had already happened. And it started back at the River Jordan because God's people put in motion a series of events where they kept coming back and leaving and coming back and leaving. If I'm being really honest, that's my story too, isn't it? But here's the beauty. Truth number four, God will do whatever it takes to get us to turn away from spiritual ruin and decay. God will do whatever it takes to get us to turn away from spiritual ruin and decay. Because what happened in Jerusalem happened long before the walls were ever torn down. But the sweet thing about Nehemiah is that God still listens to his people's prayers. And so the question is, is this is what Advent offers us, is do we want to live under the promise of Advent or something else? Do I want to live under the promise where I get to reframe and refocus my love and affection toward Jesus and kind of push aside the Black Friday sales for a hot minute and feel connected to him in a new way? Because that's what this season offers you and me an opportunity to be connected to Jesus. One more scene. We're almost done. One more scene. It's not in your Bible. I can explain that later. There's these guys, these Jewish brothers called the Maccabees. Anybody heard of the Maccabees before? Yeah. And so they did something. They're famous for something, actually. They're famous for something called the Maccabean Revolt. And so after Nehemiah goes back and rebuilds the wall, if you know your Bible stories at all, Persia gets conquered by the Greeks, Alexander the Great specifically. And then when he dies, 
this, the Greek empire gets broken up into four sections, four neighborhoods. And the guy that runs the Jewish neighborhood, the Jerusalem neighborhood, his name is, you ready for this? How would you love to have this name? Antiochus Epiphanes, which literally means anti-truth. It's, Greek, it's a Greek name, anti-truth. He was a general, one of the generals who now is overseeing Jerusalem. And so the thing about this period in Israel's history is this, is that it's illegal for them to practice their religion and to do anything with the temple. And in 175, the anti-truth of Syria came to power, and as people were really pushing back, hey, we're back in Jerusalem, we want to do the temple, he takes pigs and slaughters them on the altar. Now, if you know anything about Jewish religion, the dirtiest animal on the planet is a pig. And anti-truth comes into the temple and slaughters pigs on the altar, defiling it. And the Maccabees are so upset, they start almost like the Jewish Revolutionary War with guerrilla warfare, and they kick out Antiochus Epiphanes, and they restore the temple back to its place, and they start worshiping again and sacrificing again, right? That was in 167 B.C., that they kicked him out. About 165, excuse me, where the temple is rededicated by a festival. Now you're like, what does this have to do with Advent? Well, right here, John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. So that feast of dedication is celebrating the remembrance of what the Maccabees did. They kicked out the guy and now the temple's back up and running. And the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said, now this is really interesting, right? How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, the Messiah? Because the Jews, because of the Jordan River and the Babylonian exile and all the things, right? They're expecting God to send their redeemer, their conqueror, their person who's going to kick them out, put them back in the place within the relationship with God. So they're waiting. And the Jews are asking, how long are you going to keep a suspense? Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Notice the heart position of Jesus. Kind of similar to Nehemiah, isn't it? And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What does that have to do with Advent? Christians celebrate Advent is celebrating the arrival of Jesus in the form of a babe. Jews celebrate the rededication of the of the temple because in the story of the Maccabees, they had one flask of oil and they had to light all these candles. And if you know anything about the tent or the temple, there were candles burning 24-7, 365 days a year. But there's only a little bit of oil to make the candles burn. But miraculously, when the Maccabees kicked them out, he pulled the flask out and it kept coming and kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And the oil, which is about this little much, actually flowed so that the candles could start burning again. Do you know what the Jews call that? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. The feast of the rededication is Hanukkah, and yet we're celebrating the advent 
of Jesus, right? We celebrate the advent of Jesus. So as we hear the truth of God's word and we turn our attention to our hearts, you and I have an opportunity to change our hearts about the advent this morning. Because I don't know about you, it seems like the Jews were pretty ready to hear who the Messiah was. But yet Jesus was saying, but you're not hearing yet. You're not hearing yet. And before the Israelites could get the opportunity to either receive or reject Jesus at his arrival, they went through so much to get there. And so here's my question for you as the band comes back up. Question one, what do you have to go through to get to the other side for God to show up? Because the only way we'd go, we, we do there is we don't go around, we don't go up, we don't go under, we go right through, right? We go right through it. And as I've said before, there's a baby coming to that question, that answer, the baby has come. Amen? What is the thing that maybe you're pushing away from and disengaging from that God actually wants you to engage him with? The baby hasn't come, or is it coming? He has come. And so my prayer for you and for me is that we wouldn't have the typical Advent Christmas where we check our little boxes for four weeks and try to refocus our gaze and instead actually have a conversation on what does it look like to celebrate the Messiah coming in the form of a helpless babe and, and God in all his strength and all his majesty and all his power did what? He changed our world forever. Amen? Will you stand and pray with me, please? So God, when I think about just Advent and how we get to celebrate you coming, God, we get to also say you've come. And so Jesus, when we think about when I think about just all the stuff that the Israelites had to go through to get to a place where we're like, just tell us, are you the Messiah? Jesus, you spoke with the cross and you said, I am he. And so for, I just love that statement, my sheep know my voice. So God, I ask that you would speak and speak in such a mighty way, not just today and in this moment, not just next week when things get hard, but Lord, over the next several weeks, just speak to us. We invite you to speak and to be our Messiah. And Lord, as we get close to Christmas, let us not forget that while we open presents, Jesus, you gave the best present. And I don't have to worry about what it is, the boxes that I check, to be with you. All I have to know and do is believe. And so, Lord, that's my prayer. As we celebrate Advent, as we talk next week about what does it mean to wait well, God, will you allow us to just express our faith in a fresh, new way via your spirit. And so as I sing, Lord, just that thing, whatever we walked in with this morning, God, let us put it in its right place as we sing this song, as we respond. Because that thing, while heavy, and while we don't have what it takes to fix, Lord, that's not our God, you're our God. And Lord, that present underneath the tree that we might be seeing in the next couple of days or in the next couple of weeks for sure, God, that's not our present. Jesus, you're our present. And God, I thank you that while I don't deserve presents, you gave one anyway. And while we don't do everything perfectly, Lord, you gave it anyway. 
And so, Lord, I ask, I guess what I'm asking for, for myself and for my friends this morning, is that you would allow us to feel free before you. Because you have come. It's in your name. Amen.